Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Cooking and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Justin Huffman. Justin, welcome back to the Cooking and Grace podcast, brother. Thank you, Dave. Thanks so much. Yeah, man. It was great to catch up with you for a little bit before we got recording. Uh, can you uh, just catch us up on what's, your, what's happening in your life, marriage, ministry, and uh, any ministry projects that you're working on that you want to share? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm still married to Cho, the love of my life, for over 20 years, thank the Lord. And uh, we have four children who are growing up fast. It seems like COVID, this uh, time of COVID, this last 18 months, has somehow been a growth spurt for kids. I notice at church as well, it's just like all the kids are growing up so fast, and my kids are included in that. I'm in the dissertation phase um, as I pursue doctoral studies with Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, which, so that's a prayer request. <laughs> um, but it's also sure. been a great it's been a great blessing. Um, and yeah, over two years now, um, my family and I moved to Toronto to pastor Morningstar Christian Fellowship. And like most folks, a big chunk of the time since then has been under various COVID restrictions, which has been tough in some ways, but sweet in other ways. Um, it's allowed me to focus, for example, on this book project and, and other uh, areas, even in our church that, um, you know, just give us opportunities. Um, in fact, it's been neat to see as we've been, um, the GTA here in Toronto has been one of the strictest areas when it comes to COVID restrictions um, uh, in the world, actually. But our church has reopened for hybrid services in the summer. We're still uh, having some constraints in place, but it's amazing to see how God is doing things. Um, we recently had a baptism service with 13 people making professions of faith, uh, all from during COVID. So in other words, we can get, you know, God gets all the glory, all the credit on purpose for that. It's just obvious that in spite of our limitations, he was still working. And, um, and we just Praise continue to see new people, including non-Christians, attending every Sunday. Um, so, our experience over the last 18 months of COVID has been very much an exercise in learning to count blessings, open our eyes to the sometimes hidden glory of what God is doing in our daily lives, even when things seem uncertain, difficult, even can be boring at times. Um, and that's actually part of why I see my latest book here, uh, Behold, as a timely reminder, really for us all, because because we want to see the glory, the wonder in the in the daily grind, as it were. Wonderful, brother. Well, that's great to great to hear about what the Lord is up to at Morningstar and with you and everything as always. Appreciate that and thankful for how the Lord's using you. Uh, can you uh, just uh, tell us about this book, uh, Behold, An Invitation to Wonder, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Well, Dave, um, thank you for asking that. The divine imperative to behold is so timely and, and so needed, I think, for us all. We we don't by nature, any of us, um, we're not by nature grateful. Uh, we're not by nature 
faithful. And so it's not by nature that we gaze at the big and eternal things. We're too often, especially maybe in the midst of just the challenges and uncertainty of this day and age, we're too often instead transfixed in fear and anxiety. Um, and so the temporary and, and the physical starts to push out the eternal and the spiritual if we're not careful. And knowing our propensity, though, to, to do this, to get gaze at the wrong things, God has not only given us his word, but he repeatedly calls us to snap out of sort of our daily student ourselves instead fixated on the glory of who God is and what he's doing in and through Jesus Christ. And so that command to behold appears hundreds of times in the New Testament alone. And the reason why is because the truths that are revealed in God's word are genuinely gaze-worthy. They are uh, Jesus Christ, who is the great subject matter of the whole Bible, is he's truly awesome in his divine person and work. So in this book, we consider some of those truths, some of those occasions, some of the people that the Bible tells us specifically to behold, to consider, to pause and think about and take in. And we want to refocus then the attention and the affections of every reader onto those eternal realities in the midst of the mundane. And in doing so, hopefully we satisfy that glory hunger that we all know we have down deep. Um, and, and as in order to try to accomplish that, each chapter concludes with also helpful questions for application or discussion. So, so the book is designed to be useful for individual and small group studies to that very end. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And the thing that people should like about your reading is it's very easy to read and it's always like, you always have good short sentences that people can be like, Oh yeah, I really like that. I could share that, you know, quote that. And uh, you always <laughs> do a really, really easy to read and very quotable. So I uh, appreciate that. Um, Thank you, Dave. Yeah, yeah. This the, You just gave a great segue into our next question. In, in what way are our hearts starved for wonder, and how does the Lord meet that need? Yeah, the title of the book, You, of course, the question comes from the title of the book, which is Behold, an Invitation to Wonder. Um, G.K. Chesterton, um, who, uh, who's one of my, uh, he, speaking of quotable, he's one of the folks that is so wonderful to quote. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But he says that, you know, the world will never starve for want of wonders, um, but only for want of wonder. We, we sometimes go through daily life not really thinking about the glory of what's going on around us. So let me put it this way. I grew up in a family in which wanderlust was a real thing. We, I traveled, I think, through several continents before I was three years old. But not everyone's built that same way. Not everyone has a wanderlust. Uh, some people crave stability or familiarity. And that's, of course, beautiful both ways. Um, God has, has made people differently. But even though not everyone has a wanderlust, I think it's accurate to say that every human being is built with a deep and abiding wonderlust. We are built in the image of the God uh, of the universe, and we long for the transcendent. We are designed to live in awe. And so we know instinctively that there has to be more to life than just this life. And the Bible is God's word, and God knows us. He knows this about us, and so he answers this universal human yearning, and nowhere more clearly or passionately than in that repeated command to behold. 
Um, I tell the story in the book of going to see Niagara Falls for the first time and everybody on the, I think is the, the Maiden of the Mist or whatever the boat is called, you go up next to the falls, prince fixed and all the, the, the falls are just thundering around us. And everyone is amazed except one person. And that is the tour guide, because the tour guide has seen the falls so many times that, um, you know, the tour guide was just it was just another day. Um, but the Bible does not um, does not serve as that kind of tour guide that is so familiar with its own crews that it's not any longer in all of them. No, instead, everyone um, scripture as our tour guide through the redemptive history and the guide itself, the word of God itself, is still in awe of the greatness of what it is describing for us. And so the Bible cries out to us over and over and over again, behold, you know, look at this. So imagine you're going to, you know, the tour of Niagara Falls, and instead of the tour guide being bored, the tour guide is 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 transfixed with the glory of what's going on. That's what happens when we read God's word. God's word is itself impressed with the truths that it is that it is sharing with us. Mm, that's so good. Another thing I was thinking of is you're talking about Ecclesiastes three eleven, right? It, yeah, it's just said vanity is vanity and vanity, you know, grasping for the wind. And then he details all that. And then he says in Ecclesiastes three eleven, you know, that God has set eternity on our hearts, and that's exactly what you're saying. He's set eternity on our hearts. And so we're, we should never be bored with him. We should be fixed on him. We should behold him. We should understand who he is and what he's like. And that should leave our mouth speechless. If, you know, we're talking about Exodus 314, I am who I am. You know, Jesus says seven times I am, you know, yes. we, we should never get over the fact that we're talking about, you know, the self-sufficient eternal God, you know, who, who is, and he that's always a, will be. That's a very well said. Yeah, I, um, it's, it may sound strange to quote from uh, one of the uh, endorsements from the book, but he actually says it so well. Uh, Daryl Dash says, sometimes we yawn at God's truths, not because his truths are dull, but because our hearts are. And I think that's the problem so often. Our hearts are dull, but the truths themselves are not dull. And the point of this uh, book is just to try to recapture uh, the, the sense of wonder at the wonderful truths that God uh, tells us in his word. Amen, brother. Well, how does the temptation of Jesus in the desert instruct Christians today? Yeah, that's, that's of course, um, one of the chapters in here. Immediately after his baptism and the wonderful display of the entire trinity there at Jesus' baptism in the desert, and not just three temptations, as we often hear, but Mark, the gospel writers Mark and Luke specifically say that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. So, this is not just three temptations. This is 40 days of being tempted. Jesus not uh, in this place, not eating and being tempted by the devil continually. So just contrast that in your minds with Adam and Eve being tempted in paradise with their tummies full <laughs> and, and only one time by Satan. So, so Jesus is the great successful second Adam that, that uh, took so much more temptation actually than Adam and Eve, but yet came through it successfully. So this time in the desert culminates in three climactic temptations, yes, that we, we hear about. And, um, and one of them is to turn stones into bread. The next is for 
uh, Jesus to throw himself off the temple as a, as a way of trusting God, ironically. Um, and then finally, Satan just says, I'll show you, uh, he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and just says, I'll give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And after the temptations in the wilderness, then uh, after they fail completely to entice Jesus, we're told this specifically in Matthew 4, 11, then the devils left him, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. So why are we, why are we supposed to take special notice of angels ministering to Jesus after the, these temptations in the desert? Why is it that the scripture says, behold, look at this, angels coming and ministering to Jesus? And I think it's because this event puts two important truths on display. And, and first is the humanity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was exhausted, he was tired, he was hungry after after fasting, after being in the desert, after being um, exerting himself in these temptations. But at the same time, we also see not just the humanity of Jesus, we see the divinity, the divine success of Jesus. Humanity, because Jesus is tired and hungry, but divinity, because Jesus is completely successful. And you see that in the fact that angels are ministering to him um, after the, as by contrast, after Adam and Eve fail temptation in the Garden of Eden, of course, they are running and hiding and away from God. But here, after Jesus is tempted, angels are sent to minister to him because there is no breach in fellowship. And so there's a wonderful call to behold, to think about what has just taken place because Jesus has overcome where Adam and Eve fell. And Jesus overcame far more temptation, 40 days of temptation in a desert, not just a single temptation in paradise. And so there is this marvelous display of both his humanity and his divinity, and we're called to behold it. Mm, it's really, really good, brother. Really, really good. And, that, you know, that even takes us past, you know, quoting Jesus, quoting scripture and those kind of things. Mm. And all, all those lessons are really important, you know, in the, in the midst of our own trials and those kind of things, how Jesus used scripture. But it yes. really just shows even more that the point is God is sovereign over that. He's sovereign yes. over all of these, these things that happened to him. And like you said, he's fully God and fully man. And uh, that's just a really, really well said. So Praise God. Well, amen. I think this next question is really important for a lot of people right now. How, how can we remain faithful and focused in our growth and service to Christ when we're tired? Or maybe we feel like we're not as effective as we want. And so we're really discouraged in that. Mm. Great question. Um, and you're right, especially timely question, isn't it? Um, in the midst of, of all that's been facing our society over the last couple of years in particular, I think. Um, but the writer of Hebrews says it so well, um, though we often miss it or forget it. Um, but he says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. So there's the, the question you're asking, how do we run with endurance? Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So it's so easy to fall into the black hole of self-examination. Um, and, uh, and that's the law, right? That just continually examines ourselves. It continually says, where am I failing? Where am I succeeding? And it's exhausting. 
but the way that we get through um, that we endure the race of, of, of setting aside sin and of continuing when we're weary is looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. How do we begin this race? Jesus. How are we going to end this race? Jesus. So at the beginning of each chapter in this book, I actually include a quote from various Christians who've influenced me uh, by pointing me to Jesus. And one of them is from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who, says, who says it this way, if we spent more of our time in looking at Jesus, we should soon forget ourselves. And that's so true. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I like what John MacArthur says, too, about this. He says that we should focus on the depth of our ministry and God will take care of the breadth of our ministry. Mm. Um, there's there's three things that I often pray for, and it's every day, faithfulness, focus, and humility. Mm. And if we would if we would focus on those things, what does that end up doing? It ends up helping us to be thankful. And and I and I, and I could also say I don't practice that perfectly. <laughs> um, I I get discouraged just like everybody else. I I focus on tend to focus on well we're not reaching as many people as we should uh, we're not as far along as a ministry as we should or my book isn't doing as well as it should or this article isn't doing so i mean i'm just but but what this does is it reminds me hey what did god call me to do call me to be faithful right and what yeah. what do we have to do we have to be focused on the mission that god has given us and yes, on, the, on right. the gift and with the gifts that he's do and we need to pray for humility in all of that because we we you know we've just talked about it we need god all the all the time you know yeah. and and he provides his grace he provides his uh you know sustaining power and you know on and on and and so anybody is just so discouraged today i would just say just start praying for that pray for faithfulness for focus and for humility and just uh, maybe even also find a friend and just, you know, that, that can be a, such a help to, to share about why you're feeling that way. You know, my wife will often, um, when I tell her I'm having a really bad day and something happened, she's like, so, um, what's the answer here? <laughs> and, and I'm like, what do you mean? What's the answer? And she's like, well, and, and then she expects, and she's like, that wasn't the right answer. And I was like, wait a minute, that is the answer. I'm telling you this is the answer. And, yeah. uh, but that wasn't what she was looking for, uh, is what she means. And, and then she'll say, no, this is what you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the kind of friend, but it's not only the kind of, if you're in ministry, that's not only the kind of spouse that you need, but it's also the kind of friend that we need to be. Uh, to to one another, just reminding each other, not just the theological propositions and the ideas like you were talking about earlier, but actually the reality of it and how it's to impact our lives. Yeah, I appreciate your transparency there and admitting, of course, that you do it imperfectly. Beautiful thing about God's word is whether we're transparent with God ourselves or whether we're even self-aware and transparent with ourselves, God knows what we need. And that's why he gives us these wonderful words of encouragement and these wonderful uh, reminder to look to Jesus in the midst of, you know, our discouragements. Yeah, that's really good. Well, brother, what does our view of heroes and celebrities reveal about our understanding of Jesus? Well, you know, having a hero is not uh, wrong. We all have heroes. In fact, if we if we uh, are honest, uh, we all look up to, we all admire someone, usually even numerous people in our lives. And here's the here's the point, though. Here's the important thing to realize is who we admire 
says so much about what we admire. Mm. So who we admire says so much about what it is that we admire. What are we longing for? What are What's our own personal aspirations? And who we admire says a lot about that. So uh, it may seem trite to some people, for example, for the Bible writers to keep using this word behold so profusely throughout the New Testament. The word occurs over 200 times in the New Testament alone. And so for some people, it may just become trite. Uh, behold this, behold that. Um, if it, Maybe it starts to lose its punch for some of us after the 10th time, maybe. But, but the fact is, is this subject matter is infinitely more worthy of superlatives, of highlighting, of exclamation, of, of awe than so many of the small things that we constantly allow to capture our attention in the world around us, whether it's a famous movie star earning an Academy Award, some powerful politician winning an election, or you know, even a big weather event that's garnering global attention. These truths of scripture are enough. These these truths of scripture are so much more important than the things that we so easily idolize. They are nothing to be compared to the event of all history: God coming to be with us, God Himself, Creator of the universe, ruler over everything and everyone, gave up the perfection of heaven in order to come down to earth and take on humanity and be born in a tiny town be laid in in an animal trough for his cradle, walk among us for 30 years, die an excruciating death in our place, rise from the dead, and promise to be with us forever. Listen, that that is the stuff that, that true wonder should be made of. That is what our heart should be transfixed on. But sadly, uh, back to your question, sadly, who we admire so often says so much about what we admire, and we are, mm. we are, we're settling for, for such, C.S. Lewis talks about the, the children who are making mud pies when the ocean is in front of them, and they just, they, they, they are too easily satisfied. That's so good. You know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking that that's really really important. But somebody might somebody might hear that and say, "Well, isn't it okay that I I enjoy their their work?" And I think we would both say yes. It's yeah. just as you were talking about, where's the priority? Where's the focus of our hearts? It's not wrong. Some Christian leaders go here. They say, "Oh, it's wrong to watch sports or so on and so forth," because it takes you away from God. I I think that's not. I think that's an overreaction in that we um almost legalistic in a way because like you're saying the pri- where's the priority the priority isn't on a celebrity the priority isn't on our sports team the priority isn't but i can enjoy those things as the priority of my heart is on god i can enjoy in god's common grace the the gifts that he's given to that athlete to that to that um actor you know as long as it's not and we're talking about a movie it's not you know sinful you know and those kind of things you know because we're not supposed to put any worthless thing before our eyes but you know I think we have to have a good balance on this because um, like, like we're, like we're saying, you know, like Hollywood, you know, I lived in California. I lived an hour away from Hollywood. And I can tell you as somebody who's lived in California and been to Hollywood, it's, it's a trashy, it's, it's total, it's totally about, you know, what the world wants. And that's exactly the opposite of what God offers us. He offers us real pleasure. He offers us the right priorities and, you know, he is totally sufficient in and of himself. And like C.S. Lewis, like C.S. Lewis, he would talk about the lesser glory. And that's what we're talking about. That's exactly right. And, 
Ed, to your point, it's not at all that um, we don't enjoy creative uh, beauty, whether it's athleticism or food or, uh, you know, the, the sunset in front of us that's directly God's creation or whether it's art, what, music, whatever it is. But we, we enjoy those things as ways of seeing the glory of God. So they should be windows through which we look at God. They shouldn't be things that we look at as end in, ends in themselves. Uh, and I think that's really where the key is, is, is where does our, our admiration terminate? Um, does the, do the things that we uh, see around us, the things we enjoy as parts of God's creation, do they spur us to look at the glory of who God is? Or, uh, you know, God puts it this way himself in his word, or do they, instead, we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator, right? Amen. Amen. Very good. What are the consequences of viewing Jesus as a martyr of social reform, a humanitarian, or only as a religious leader, moral example, or teacher? Well, my answer is going to be pretty quick to pretty short to that one, and that is we miss the whole point, right? We miss the whole point of Jesus's life, of Jesus's teaching, and effectively deny Jesus's resurrection when we uh, speak of him as merely a martyr or merely a religious leader or moral example. And the book of Matthew, um, it's important to recognize, is book-ended by a barrage of commands to behold uh, what it is that Matthew is recording. And as we read about Jesus's death and burial and resurrection, we're told repeatedly to behold, because we <laughs> Matthew wants us to see much more than just a social reformer, much more than just a religious leader. He wants in the beginning of, of his gospel for us to see the virgin birth, at the end of his gospel to see the substitutionary death. And then, of course, finally, at the end of his gospel, then the Great Commission, in which Jesus now says, I have all authority, go therefore to all nations, and behold I am with you all ways. And so our eyes are meant intentionally by the gospel writers to be focused on Christ's deity, on Jesus's divinity, not merely on what he taught, but on what how he lived health. And then, of course, how he died and rose again and is now with us uh, as we go to all nations with his all authority. Yeah, that's really good. You know, growing up in Seattle, I, I just remember this is probably the biggest issue that I would talk about with people. They think mm. I can mix Christianity. So it's, it's that's what syncretism is. It's, oh, I'm going to have a little bit of, you know, Buddha with, you know, a little bit of Muhammad, a little bit of a little bit of philosophy. And I'm going to put it in a bowl and I'm going to mix it around and I'm going to then I'm going to put Jesus in that bowl in the Bible. And that's my that's my religion. And you know, that's, you can't, you can't, it's like Jesus, you, you can't hyphenate Jesus and then say that there's going to be something plus Jesus or so, whatever that is, or you can't mix it in a bowl. Because I mean, even Jesus himself says you can't do that. You, 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 there's no other way. There's no other access. There's no other path. There's no other way to God. Uh, John 14, 6 says, apart from him. And yeah. So, you know, that's just, it's all going back to Ecclesiastes 3. It's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all meaningless, you know, without, without Jesus. That's the bankruptcy of, of, like you said so well, that's the bankruptcy of that, 
of that view. And um, yeah. people are people are sadly pursuing that. And I would say if that's you, you need to go look at the go actually read the Bible and and realize the realize read the gospels and look at how Jesus talks about himself. You know, he doesn't say you can mix and match. He he actually confronts people. And in fact, one passage chapter I would encourage our listeners and those who are watching this is John 6, because mm-hmm. even at the very end. You know, Jesus has done all these great miracles and he's talked to these people and he's done these things. And uh, he says, you know, Peter says to him, who, who do, uh, where, where, where can I go? You have the words of eternal life, mm. you know, because he asked him, are you going to leave too? And he, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life, but people are leaving in droves and uh, um, because he confronts their pride, he confronts their religiosity and um, there's, there's no other Nobody else other than than Jesus who can confront us in that way, as we've talked about. He's fully God and fully man. He he knows us um, and he knows the heart of man. So that's right. We we respect Jesus um, because of the incredible, uh, admirable person that we see on the pages of the Gospels. And yet, if we read the Gospels, they don't just present an admirable person to us. They uh, present to us someone who is himself, to reference John 6, where you were mentioning, who stands up in the middle of a feast and and uh, throws the whole party into disarray by saying, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger. <laughs> Normal teachers do not talk like that. <laughs> that is that is a claim to divinity, right? And so yes. um, he says, you know, if you eat of me, then you'll live forever. If you if you don't, then then you won't. And so uh, Jesus himself, as represented so clearly in the Gospels over and over again, points us to himself and and also then when we even as we believe in him points us to himself and says behold i am with you always listen don't forget it because you'll be tempted to forget it don't forget it because you'll get down you'll get discouraged as we've been talking about but behold i am with you always don't ever take your eyes off that truth that promise amen brother what are the three specific lessons you you talk about in the book uh, we should not miss in paul's passionate address to the ephesian leaders yeah, in Acts chapter 20, of course, uh, Paul addresses the uh, leaders at Ephesus before he leaves, and, and he says, and I'm just going to read it briefly, he says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that prison and affliction await. And he goes on to say, But I do not account my life of any value And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And so at least three things that we can pull out from this that that Paul really wants his immediate audience to behold, and and we as readers uh, are to grasp this as well. And the first is this, that affliction awaits those who faithfully testify to the gospel. I mean, that's what Paul says. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm, I'm, I'm led there by the Spirit. I don't even know what's going to happen there, except the one thing I do know is prison and affliction. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that is not the kind of certainty we like to hear. That's It's like a, a risk-free investment, except the, the, risk, uh, the risk-freeness is we promise uh, that you're going to have a problem. Um, and so uh, affliction awaits those who faithfully testify to the gospel. The second thing, though, we see from Paul 
is that even though the cost of living for the gospel is high, the cost is nothing. And mm-hmm. Paul says, listen, even though I know nothing except that prison and affliction await, he says, I do not account my life of any value. So even though the cost is high, the cost is nothing. It's worth nothing compared to finishing the mission that God has given me here to do. And then finally, um, the third lesson we learned there is just that living to testify the gospel may not only mean pain because of its enemies, you may be imprisoned or afflicted as Paul was, but Paul also reminds us it will mean pain because you may have to leave friends. So it's not just enemies may attack you, but you may have to leave friends. Paul had to get up and go away from a place with dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ around him and go to an uncomfortable place in order to serve God. And that's so often the case. I have dear friends who are missionaries, um, many dear friends who are missionaries. And that's, I know, one of the great pains that they experience is being away. It's not merely that they're in a place that's persecuting Christians. Maybe that's the case as well. But whether that is the case or not, one of the great pains of being a missionary, of going with the gospel to a new place, is the fact that you're leaving loved ones. The fact that you don't get to be together for, you know, Christmas dinners and and get to watch the kids, uh, nephews and nieces grow up and be there for your parents as they're getting older and whatnot. Um, And so it's just a reality. It's a fact that brothers and sisters in Christ will have to give up even each other uh, sometimes in order to pursue the, the gospel. And so Paul reminds his audience of that and says, behold, I will not see your face again. And and it's so sweet, the scene there, because it says they weep, not even at the fact that he said, you're going to have all kinds of challenges after I leave, but mainly at the fact that he said, I'm not going to see you anymore. <laughs> yes, so it's the, their love for him was so sweet that, that it wasn't so much the predictions, the prophecy that Paul gave concerning the church at Ephesus and the challenges they were about to face. It was more just the fact that they knew that they wouldn't get to see him again. And so they weep and embrace him. And it's just a sweet, sweet scene there. And we're meant to behold it on purpose and learn the lessons from it. Mm, well said, brother. How should a biblical understanding of Jesus impact every act, decision, and thought? of the Christian life? Great question. Second uh, Corinthians 6, 2 says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Um, and this, this uh, very clear statement from Paul in 2 Corinthians is right on the heels of what he says in the chapter before, chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, think about it, the new has come. You're a new creation. So this is true in the big picture of redemption, his, redemptive history, and Paul is referencing that reality. Uh, we are a new creation. There, this is an, The old has passed away. That's certainly the case. We are in the New Testament, the new covenant that is in Christ's blood. But it's also true intimately and personally. Now is the day of salvation, not just because we live in the New Testament era and and we know the Christ and we have the message of the Christ that we can bear to the ends of the earth, but intimately, personally, we need to behold this reality and recognize that eternal life does not begin for the believer um, the day that Jesus comes back or the day that I go to be with him after death. Eternal life is right now. Eternal life is eternal. So the moment you have it, you never lose it. So as a believer, 
it's it's so crucial for us to behold that reality that now is a day of salvation for Justin Huffman. God is intimately right now involved in my life, and he is delivering me today, and he is working all things together for my good and for his glory. And, and so, again, this is one of those realities that if we take our eyes off, it's like Peter taking his eyes off Jesus and putting it on the waves, right? We take our eyes off this reality, we're going to start sinking fast. But if we recognize, wait, today, now is the day of salvation? Now I am a new creation? I don't have to wait until I'm finally, ultimately, perfectly glorified, but today I have the Spirit of God living inside me? That changes everything. Mm, Well said, brother. Well, well said. How does learning patience help us to remain steadfast? Well, um, James actually uh, speaks to this very issue, and he says in James chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed. We consider those happy who remain steadfast. And listen, Dave, the older I get, the more, (laughs) I'm sure you feel the same way, the more I appreciate just the plain old um, virtue of steadfastness. It's a boring word even, but man, those who persevere, those who just keep going, those who have gone through the ups and the downs and the challenges and the uncertainties and the the um, raising of kids and the empty nesting and the uh, you know the the pains and sorrows and challenges of growing old. I mean, steadfastness. Uh, steadfast is now some of my greatest heroes. Just people who who persevered through, no matter how boring their everyday life may have looked to the rest of us, but they just they just kept going and. and and James wants us to look under the surface of things because we can so easily, and we're we're guilty of this in, in celebrity Christian culture. So I'll look at the, who's glorious for the moment, who's every who's writing all the books right now, who's you know the the preacher with the biggest church, or who has the newest program that that will for sure grow your church or whatever. And, and James says, no, 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 don't look at that. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And he goes on, James goes on to give us specific illustrations of that. He talks about behold the tongue, because he, he says it's impossible to control the tongue. And so what an amazing thing that there is a perfect man we can look at, Jesus Christ, who controlled his tongue perfectly and will help us to, to, to control our hearts, our lives as well. And then he says, behold the farmer, maybe the preeminent example of, of the boring steadfastness that, that's necessary, right? The man uh, or the, the, the farmer who goes out to plant and yet has nothing to show for it the next day or the next day or the next day, right? But he knows he has to keep going. He knows he has to keep uh, working and waiting on God's timing. And then finally, uh, James says, behold the judge, recognizing that um, that we we are have are fast every one of us fast approaching the day when we will stand before the judge and you know what the only thing that will matter on the day that we stand before the judge it will matter not at all where we were on the bestseller list um, what will matter is were we steadfast mm. by the power of God by the grace of God, were we steadfast to the end? That's that's what that's what matters. That's all that matters. And and James reminds us of that uh, over and over again. Yeah, that's that's really really good. 
you know, one thing I think that people forget is patience really hurts. Um, yeah. Some people might be like, what do you mean by that? You're out of your mind saying that. But what I mean is it, it, it hurts, you know, in a sense, because you're killing your you have to kill your put your flesh to death. You know, when that difficult person is coming at you and saying whatever they're going to say and, you know, who hasn't had that happen on social media or at church or, you know, maybe your boss or something. Uh, what are you going to do in that moment? Are you, are you going to show, I mean, one of the fruits of the spirit working in us is patience. So what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to count the cost in that moment? And, and patience is going to hurt. That's what I mean. And, and because it's going to cost you something, it's going to cost you something to, to be patient with that person, to sit there and listen, to understand, to be, as you talked about from James being slow to speak, you know, not, not quick to quick, to, not quick to speak, but slow to speak, you know, and, and those kind of things, or are you just going to, you know, say whatever you want to say and the chips are going to fall. And I can tell you, there's been times when, you know, there was one time when I was working at Starbucks even, and um, I knew better than this. Uh, he, I, I'd, I'd yelled across the way, uh, we were just freshly married, my wife and I, uh, maybe I think we had been married a couple of weeks and, oh man, I was so offended that the, the assistant manager told me, don't talk to your wife. Don't yell across her. All I did was say, I love you or something like that. But I was so offended that he felt that he had the right to tell me and what, I needed to remember is patience really hurts. And the more I kept thinking about this and I, this was, this was now, uh, you know, four, 14 years ago, I've come by God's grace a long way, but the more I kept thinking about you, it was a slow roll. And so um, anyway, it ended up happening. I lost the, I, I ended up going from getting a promotion at Starbucks to actually being asked to leave because I took this manager in the back and I told him exactly what I thought. <laughs> and, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we can laugh about that because that was 14 years ago. And, you know, all of us have had those moments, but it just illustrates the fact that patience hurts. If I had instead just said, Lord, you know, this guy, he, he has real problems and he did, he legit had real problems and everybody there had problems with them. But, how I responded in that instance, it said more about me than it did about his issues because mm -hmm. all I had to do is let that go and just say, Lord, he, I'll just pray for him and, and Lord open his eyes and those kind of things and help me to be patient and, and see him through the love of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And, um, it took a long time for me to get to that, to that place, you know, and that's yeah, the, the, the pain, the pain that is, necessary in patience is exactly why I think James says, behold, we consider them blessed. And, and the point is that if you just glance, then patience doesn't look fun, exciting, or happy. It looks painful. Waiting, persevering looks painful. But if we take a closer look, then we see what James would have us see, and that is that endurance, that steadfastness to the end, that's actually where true and lasting happiness is found. Yeah. Amen. What's wrong with the idea of thinking judgment is bad? And, and how does that view affect our understanding of the Christian life? Well, yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis points uh, this out, that everybody thinks uh, judgment is bad until you are the one in need of a righteous judgment. He talks about the widow who comes to Jesus persistently. Jesus actually uses this as an example of persistence who comes um, 
Jesus tells the, the, the story of this woman who comes to, uh, to the judge persistently, persistently begging, begging to be judged. Isn't that interesting? We think of judgment as, as a bad thing, but this widow is coming and asking, please judge my case. Uh, and the reason why is because we don't normally think of judgment as justice, as hmm. justice being done. But that's exactly what, of course, a holy God brings when he brings judgment. He brings justice. He makes all things right. Um, and so, again, back to James, James says, James chapter 5, verse 9, do not grumble against one another's another brothers uh, so that you may not be judged. So there's judgment in a bad way. Yes, behold, though the judge is standing at the door. So there is a very real sense in which judging should give us sobriety, should give us a thoughtfulness about our, our actions, recognizing that one day we'll stand before the judge of the universe. But on the other hand, everyone who's ever been wronged or look around you and you see wrongs perpetrated across society, of course, as we're talking, Dave, all kinds of tragic, tragic things in the news right now across the globe um, of, of great injustices being perpetrated uh, against innocent people. And yet God promises that one day justice will truly take place and every wrong will be righted. And ultimately, of course, every wrong will be righted either by punishing it eternally in the wrongdoer or in punishing it on Christ in their place. And that's why we, we, we don't shrink away from judgment. We, we actually run to Christ as our judge and we say, oh, take our place. We trust you. Um, and, and we want justice to be done, but we, we don't want it to be done without Christ in our stead. Yeah, that's really good. I, I just reminded, you know, we, we focus so much in the church on love and, you know, love is great. You know, we, we, we all were, you know, God has poured out his love, you know, upon us in Christ, Romans 5, 1. And that's great. But we also have to see revelation, and we have to understand that those are real judgments that are they're going to destroy all of society. Uh, they're going to rip civilization up one end and down another. And and then Christ will, as we'll talk about here in a minute, or, you know, he's going to return no matter what your view is about that. I mean, that's how it that's how it plays out. And and the judgment isn't a bad thing. That's a that's going to bring about Christ's glorious return, and it and it should also make us sober, right? Because that that the wrath of God is displayed there, and the wrath of God burns against sinners, and that's why they need Christ. They need they need to know that, and in, in like you were saying earlier about Christ dying in our place, you know, we need to know that you can escape the the fiery wrath of God. Uh, that's that's coming and it's real it's going to happen it's going to be before the before everybody's eyes and then it'll be too late to escape that wrath and you can avoid that wrath by coming to christ you know and we shouldn't that's be exactly even right. afraid we shouldn't even be afraid to say as reformed christians i think we're too too afraid to say hey you you need to understand this because it it, it not only it not only helps you just to stop focusing so much on love, which I'm not against focusing on love, but if you understand this, you will actually preach love correctly um, mm -hmm. because, you know, you'll, you'll be able to see love and 
mercy and justice they they meet perfectly in in this and uh, in the in the wrath of god in in the work of christ and they're perfectly and forever satisfied they're not opponents to each other and we have that's right a- i mean yeah the the very you you talked about how it leads us to mercy and that's exactly right that's that's back to the widow that jesus speaks of who comes to the judge begging begging for justice um, and, and the fact is, there there are abused people. There are, uh, you know, people who have been in oppressive situations their whole life, and it's a wonderful reality to be able to say to them, justice will be served, and not in some sort of revengeful way uh, that that you know um, that that spurs up the wrong kind of spirit in someone, but merely to say to them, listen, God knows what you're going through. And God will make all things right. Um, that that's a wonderful thing. That's why the widow comes begging for justice because we all actually long for that. Yeah, really good. Well, brother, how does the imminent return of Jesus shape our our view of the present and the future? Well, that's the perfect question to frame our understanding, actually, of the book of Revelation. I think um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, concludes with over thirty cries to behold. In that one book alone, and among those, among those are just let me read a few. Revelation one seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So that changes everything. No, this is unavoidable. This is not just for Christians to think about. This is he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. So it's universally applicable. Um, Revelation 21.5, he says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Back to our point of justice um, that we were just talking about. And, And for that matter, back to the point of eternal life that begins today. There is coming, though, a day in which the culmination of eternal life takes place and God will make all things new in that day. Jesus will will redeem his people, his creation, and everything will be new. Um, And in fact, he says, behold this. And he goes on to say, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So don't ever take your eyes off the words on the page is in a sense what the, the writer is saying. Behold, write this down. These things are trustworthy. You're going to miss it. You're going to think about, uh, you're going to be tempted to, to doubt it. You're going to think about temporary things. Instead, recognize there is coming a day in which Jesus will make all things new. And then Revelation 22, 7, of course, behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And so how should the imminent return of Jesus shape our view of the present and future? It it means it's universally applicable. There's not a single person who this doesn't apply to because every eye will see him. But also it it means that we have something to look forward to, uh, that he's making all things new one day and one day soon, because he says, behold, I'm coming soon. And the fact is, Dave, uh, the older I get, the sooner it, it, it actually looks, <laughs> because I know that that either he is, um, you know, either he's coming in 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 glorious uh, uh, in personal return, which he he will one day. But either that comes first, or uh, I go to him. And either way, uh, that's coming soon. Um, man, I look around me and I'm just like, wow, life is going by faster and faster. And rather than merely sentimentally expressing that reality, we're meant to actually behold 
the the greater reality, and that is that that we are getting closer and closer, and that should change everything, everything now, and everything about what we think about and aspire for, and and how how we battle anxiety for the future. Mm. Well said, brother. Well said. Well, where can people go to find out more about you on social media or on your website or anywhere else you might be, brother? Yeah, thank you. Um, my website, justinhuffman.org. Um, would love to have folks uh, visit there. You can write on the homepage. You can click to read more about the book and also to go purchase it. Um, I am on social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. So I'd love to have connect with you there. Um, as you know, David, uh, Dave, I have a, um, a daily devotion app as well uh, that's available on iTunes and on Android. And would love for anybody, it's it's actually named Daily Devotion. <laughs> so um, if you go and, and search for Daily Devotion and, and Android or on your um, iTunes store, uh, you'll find it. And that's a great way of keeping connected because it also links to other resources, including my website. So whether it's on the phone or uh, on the website, however you, you want to access, I, I love to, my, my heart, my desire is to just uh, to help us all recapture the wonder of who God is and what he's doing in and through Jesus Christ every single day. And, and so I hope that will be the end of uh, the, the goal, the the uh, the culmination of your connecting where wonderful brother wonderful and i encourage our our listeners and those watching this to to connect with you you'll they'll really enjoy everything that you post so you know there's a lot that we could cover and we've really only scratched the surface and in most of this conversation just as we wrap up do you have some takeaways for our Listeners of those watching this. Yeah. Um, you know, even though we have focused mainly in, in the book on the New Testament imperatives to uh, behold, we find another and actually very instructive occurrence of that same concept in the Psalms uh, in the Old Testament. David writes this. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that I will seek after. He goes on to say to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. So when you think of a practical book or a practical sermon or podcast or whatever it is, we might think of, um, you know, a message on personal finances or a book about, you know, how to um, whatever, um, maybe even a message calling for charitable work or something. But these things that we're talking about, Dave, these, these scriptural realities revealed in, in God, um, in his word, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, um, these things are, are practical, but the psalmist David joins the chorus of New Testament witnesses in order to remind us the most practical thing we can do then is gaze by faith at the glory of God in Jesus Christ until we are every one of us once again ravished with the beauty of who he is. And this is the one thing really that we're seeking to do in this book um, and, and in all of life. And so that's, that's the, if, you, if there's one takeaway, it's just that this is the one thing. This is the one thing that we're striving for is to gaze at the beauty of who God is in Jesus Christ. And I so appreciate the publisher, uh, Christian Focus Publishers, which by the way, you can also find the book on their website and information about it. I appreciate them publishing this book and because uh, I think they they understood that that vision, that desire to, to just point people to the one thing. Mm, wonderful. Well, brother, I, I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate the time that you've given to me today, you know, both before and, and to record and 
Guys, uh, Justin's book is Behold an Invitation to Wonder from Christian Focus. I strongly encourage you to pick it up and and to be reminded and to not only be reminded, but to be stirred afresh and uh, and encouraged. So thank you, brother, so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Dave. God bless. God bless you too. Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins.